Beloved, if you are visiting with us this morning on behalf of our congregation, it's my privilege to offer you a warm welcome in the name of Jesus and any of you joining us for the online streaming service. We are very, very grateful that you've joined us. We're in the middle of a series in one of the New Testament epistles, one of the first given to us from the hand of Paul, 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to read for us 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through, uh, I'm sorry, 9 through 12. And we're going to focus on verses 11 and 12 this morning. But I want to give the first two verses to provide a little bit of context. So this is God's word for you this morning. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. You can imagine a situation of two friends walking home from Paul's Bible study in ancient Thessalonica one evening. So what'd you think? What was your biggest takeaway? Oh, that's easy. I'm not going to work tomorrow morning. Wait, what? Sure. Paul just taught us that the Lord Jesus Christ could come again anytime, even this week, and end earth history. Why should I go to work tomorrow when what I produce potentially will be completely immaterial? Why not spend my time going house to house, generating enthusiasm among everyone for the second coming? And besides, if I'm wrong, the deacons have a mercy fund to bail me out financially. Now, this is not a hypothetical scenario. It is very likely some friends were talking and thinking that way. And that's what gives rise to verses 11 and 12. Paul needs to respond to a misunderstanding about how we wait for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's essentially saying this. Look, you have let a good thing being excited about Jesus' second coming, the exact timing of which we are not certain, you have let a good thing eclipse obligations for events, the timing of which we are certain. And that is, you need to get up and go to work tomorrow morning. So, let's just answer this one question based on this text. Why should you go to work Monday morning? Why work? I'll give you two main reasons. First of all, we work because in working, we imitate God and we serve God. You open your Bible and you start to read what's the first thing you see. God is working. God is creating everything in our inhabited world in the space of six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. 
And yet God continues to work. He is upholding his creation. He is ordaining all things that take place on this earth. God continues to work. The next thing we read is that God creates men and women in his own image, not least in the image of God as worker. So Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve were given the unspeakable privilege of doing two fundamental things in the midst of God's pristine creation. Having families and extending God's reign over all the earth. Work created by God is good. Now, some of you are protesting. Oh, Mike, you don't understand. My job is boring sometimes. My job is frustrating. My job is stressful. My job is seemingly insignificant. No doubt, beloved. But it's not because work itself is bad. Work is good. What makes your work all of that is sin. Our lives on this earth are lived under the curse. The curse affects our ability to fulfill the cultural mandate. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. God said, cursed is the ground because of you, because of your sin. In pain you shall eat it of all the days of your life. This was not in the original picture. Sin has brought pain and difficulty of work into this world. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Your work is difficult not because it's work. Your work is difficult because of sin. And even in spite of that, in spite of the curse, we are privileged to serve God in our work. Whatever you do, look at Colossians 3.23. What a breathtaking blessing God pronounces on whatever your work is. Paul writes, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So when you show up at work tomorrow morning and you look at your boss, you need to see behind your boss the unspeakable privilege of serving Jesus Christ in your work. And so it's with, with these truths in mind that Paul writes verse 11, the truth that our work is given to us by God to imitate God as worker, and in our work we have the privilege of serving God against that backdrop, against his own teaching that Jesus may return by the end of this week, by the end of this sermon. Paul writes in verse 11, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Why should you go to work in the morning? You imitate God as worker, and you have the privilege of serving God. 
that, that should be enough. Let's, let's go home. Well, I'll say more. <laughs> There's more in these two verses, and I'll put it under this general category. Why should you go to work? You benefit from it. And I want to tease out a number of reasons you can follow along in the outline. First of all, you work, it benefits your physical needs. Strictly speaking, work is an exchange. Your time, your talents, your energy for money. And your income enables you to survive in this world. If there's any question about that in your mind, that work at least functions to help you pay the bills, God has placed something in your stomach as a constant reminder. It's called hunger pains. Hunger pains. Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite urges him on. For his mouth urges him on. His appetite works for him. What the Proverbs is saying is this. When you wake up tomorrow morning and your head says, I don't want to go to work today. Your stomach says, oh, you better. Because <laughs> if you don't work, you don't have money. If you don't have money, you don't buy food. If we don't eat, these hunger pains are going to strike us relentlessly. So the Bible teaches that there should be consequences for not working. Proverbs 13, 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. Why? Because righteous people believe in the goodness of work. They believe that when they work, they, they imitate God. They believe that when they work, they serve God. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want because they're not working. So if you need to work, if you need income, and you are able to work, and you are unwilling to work, you should what? You should starve until your hunger pangs drive you into the workforce. Secondly, work benefits you. It meets psychological needs. When someone has done something really well, you've accomplished a project, a, a work, or boys and girls at school, you get back that A on that test or that project. Do you frown or smile? You smile. There is inherent pleasure-taking in a job well done. Incidentally, boys and girls, in, in case you've checked out of this sermon because I'm not, I don't have a job, you actually do have a job. You have two jobs. Your first job is your schoolwork. You're to work and imitate God in your schoolwork and serve God. Behind all your teachers stands the Lord. Secondly, God has placed most of you in a home. You have the privilege of serving mom and dad in your homes. Working to bring blessing to your brothers and sisters. What can I do outside in the yard? Can I do the dishes? Can I help set the table? There's a lot of things. If you ask mom and dad, they could say joyfully you could do to help work around the home. Just an aside, but an important one. Work meets psychological needs. The joy, the dignity taken in a job well accomplished. One of the most striking verses in the New Testament to me is where Paul uses the word pride in a positive sense. Everywhere else, to my knowledge, in the New Testament, pride is a negative thing. 
and for good reason. But look at Romans 15, 17, and 18. Paul writes, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. A satisfaction, a sweet savoring of his work as he reflects on it. And then he immediately uh, conditions it with this. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by the power of his Spirit. If you look back on your work week and you accomplished something, you can ultimately give Christ the glory for it. If you have a task set before you this week in your work, no matter what your work is, you should ask the Spirit of Christ to empower you, to inflame your imagination, to stir your mind, to give you the energy, to give you the ability to do that work well. Why isn't God intensely interested in what you do at the office, in your workplace? And beloved, this is why people who know God strive for excellence in everything they do. God does all things well. And we are privileged to mirror His image through our excellent efforts, whatever it is. So no wonder Proverbs says this, Diligence is the precious possession of a person. It's precious. Do you pray for diligence? You see an echo of that in the New Testament, Romans 12, 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now apparently, some of the folks in Thessalonica either missed the time Paul taught on this when he was there, or they have forgotten it. Look what he has to write in his second epistle, 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 6. Paul's addressing this issue of saying, I'm not going to work Monday morning. He writes this. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from this. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It is not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Think back for a second. What's the backstory here? Paul's missionary strategy, he comes into a city. What's the first place it goes? Synagogue. He's finding common ground for the gospel. He knows their Bible. They know his Bible. Their Bible all uh, uh, predicted the sufferings and glories of Christ. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to preach. He's seeing who among these peoples God has worked in whose hearts to believe the gospel. He has a wonderful time in the synagogue. Usually they kick him out after a day or two. What's the next place he goes? He goes down the street. What's he finding? Tent maker's shop. 
excuse me, where's the tent maker building in the city? Uh, down here, take a left, take a right, three blocks down. He goes to the tent maker shop. He walks in, he goes, hey, I'm going to be in town for you know, three weeks, couple months. Do you have any temporary work? You're hired. Paul immediately goes to work. He works, he says, night and day as a tent maker. It's pretty stunning, isn't it? In human terms, who's the most important person on the face of the earth at this point in human history? Probably the Apostle Paul. And yet he's willing to work night and day as a tent maker to be an example to the Thessalonians. So he works. What happens in the evening? He has his Bible studies. He ministers to people. He's loving on people. He's teaching them the scriptures. He's working at a job. He's working for Jesus around the edges. Who can imagine he has very much time to sleep? Probably. One day, somebody pulls him aside. Paul, come here. Look, we've all fallen in love with you. We love your teaching. Our lives are being transformed by your message. We see your example. We sense your love for us. We have such affection for you. I've got a plan. Quit your job at the tent makers and spend all your time ministering to people here in Thessalonica. We're going to meet your needs. I'm going to reach deep into my retirement account. I've talked to some friends. We've, co- we've pulled this collection together. We've got the money to support you, Paul. What a great idea. And what does Paul say? Thank you, but no. No, keep your money. I'm going to keep working as a tent maker. I'm going to keep my pattern of ministering around the edges. Thereby, I will be an example to all and a burden to none. See what he's saying in this text? An example to all and a burden to none. If you're going to feed me, I'm going to pay for it. If I'm going to pay for it, i got to go to job, to work Monday morning. So then notice what he writes continuing in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. He's already taught them about this. So the guys thinking they don't have to go to work miss this lesson. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy buddies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. See, now you have two forms of laziness. Not doing what God has called you to do, or on the flip side, doing what you're not called to do. And the book of Proverbs, wisdom literature, how to negotiate every aspect of your life has a lot to say about laziness, has a lot to say about your work. Here's just one verse that speaks to this, Proverbs 10.5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. In the summertime, and the harvest comes in, what should you do? Go get the fruits and vegetables you worked so hard to bring forth from the ground. The, the harvest is not a time for sleeping, for goodness sakes. That's shameful, he says. So laziness is a failure to do what God has called you to do. Before I move on, I want to I encourage you to wrestle with a question I've wrestled with for years. And I believe it's a legitimate application of these verses. And that is this, and I'll, I'll just ask myself publicly. 
Why am I not more diligent to serve Jesus? I, I, there's diligence in my heart to do lots of different things, but I often have to search in vain in my heart for an unbridled diligence, zeal, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ more fervently and faithfully. Think about that quietly before the Lord. Maybe that's not you. It's something I've struggled with. Why am I not more diligent for the Lord Jesus Christ? So we're looking at reasons why you should go to work in the morning. Number one, you imitate God as worker and you serve God. Should be reason enough. But two, it benefits you. And we're teasing out some of the ways it benefits you from the text. Here's another way it benefits from you. Others benefit from your work. So to not work is to cheat your fellow man of your gifts. If God has given you abilities and gifts that help fulfill the cultural mandate, to not use them is to rob others of the benefit produced by those gifts. So there's an amazing uh, set of verses in Proverbs 11, 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. The sage is saying that you have a moral obligation to your fellow man to share what God enables you to produce. God wants his people to bless the communities in which he plants them. Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city into which I've sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. The, the history of followers of Jesus in Charlottesville is in, point, is in part the history of people making Charlottesville better because they use their gifts for the city, to make the city better. So how thankful are you that, you know, if you look around this room, every body in here was created by God. Everything else, everything else is the fruit of human beings who use their ingenuity, their talent, their abilities, their energy, their resources to bring to pass the chairs, the carpet, the flowers, the piano, the clothes on your back, the coffee in your cup, the cup, your clothes. Did I say that twice? Everything is the fruit of people who worked. You ever think about that? Next reason your work benefits from you. Others, outsiders will respect you. Look at verse 12. So you may walk properly before outsiders. Now not for a moment does Paul think you should seek the approval of outsiders. But is he not saying... We should avoid drawing the 
scorn of outsiders because of the slothful way we work. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. I'm kind of a football fan, and years ago in the NFL, there was a wide receiver who was notorious for this. If the play was going to the other side of the field and he was lined up on the opposite side, he just stood there and wouldn't run a pattern, wouldn't serve as a decoy. All the commentators called him out. Look at that. He's so lazy. Anybody know who I'm talking about? I won't name him. You can ask me afterwards. At no point naming him. But all the commentators said, that's just lazy. You don't do that. He drew the scorn of others by an undisciplined, lazy approach to his craft. What are we saying about our God when we go about our work in a half-arsed way? What are we saying about God? Everything you do says something about God. Next reason your work benefits you, for, for, uh, benefits you your independence spares others the burden of supporting you. Look at verse 12, and be dependent on no one. Remember the context, it's love. How do we define love last week? Love is seeking what is good for the other person. It has an eye on their needs. Love is not a feeling. It is a commitment to bring something good to the other person to the other person through your resources now think about it if i'm able to work and i need income and i refuse to work what is the loving thing for you to do it's not loving to bail me out because then you would be facilitating that's not the right word you would be enabling a sinful lifestyle on my part that's not love and it's not love for me to not work and take your money, leaving you with less. That's not good for you. That would be the point there. I think there's a clear implication here, and that is we are called to live within our means. One of the joys I've had over the years is doing premarriage counseling with hundreds of Christian young people. We get to the end of the program and we come to the money part. And I say, are you going to make a budget? Yes, 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 no. Well, you need to make a budget. You're not going to graduate from my premarriage without committing to make a budget. We're going to make a budget. We got a budget. What's the first thing, what's the first line item on your budget? The first check you're going to write every month. What's that first check? Our tithe. Our tithe. First thing goes to the Lord. Check all the, all the young Christian folks. They're all committed to that. It's just so heartwarming. And I say what's left is what you have to live on. Are you committed to living within your means? You will not go into debt unless for some extraordinary extenuating circumstances beyond your control. Are you going to live in the, with the balance and maybe save some for a rainy day? Yes. You pass the course. Tithe, live within your means. The simple economics of God's kingdom. 
last reason your work benefits you. First of all, you imitate God and you serve God. What could be better? But we've teased out a lot of other good reasons. Here's the last reason. You reveal the glory of Christ's ambition. So work faithfully accomplished mirrors the glory of Christ. Let me explain. Jesus worked with his hands for the better part of half his life. Let's assume he started in his dad's carpenter shop around age 12. At age 30, he set the wood aside. And for three years, worked diligently, faithfully, intentionally, with an undistracted focus, teaching, healing, discipling 12 men, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. If there's any doubt in your mind that Jesus Christ worked with the sort of faithfulness and diligence and intentionality that we're speaking of. Listen to some of these phrases right out of the gospel. I must be about my father's business. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. I lay my life down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and I always do what is pleasing to my father. Jesus' unbridled ambition, his faithful work, all was moving towards a very specific climax and end. And that was what, beloved, to free you from the impossible burden of making yourself acceptable to God. We are born into this world hardwired to think it is up to us to prove our worth to God. It's on me to live the kind of life without which I will never make a claim on the presence of a holy God. You're hardwired to prove the worth of your salvation. Jesus' work on this earth is to free you from that absolutely impossible ambition. Human beings through the history of the world have been ambitious for many, many, many things, and they have succeeded. There is no one in history who has succeeded to fulfill the ambition of making themselves righteous for God. That was Jesus' ambition. Hebrews 12, 1 let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, here's his work, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was always Jesus' ambition to get back to the wood but not to hold it, but to be held to it by those nails and thus purchase for you a forgiveness, a cleansing, a righteousness, a salvation, a redemption that makes you absolutely 
beautiful in the eyes of God. Only Jesus can do that. And when he breathed his last and said, it is finished, he accomplished it. All you can do, beloved, all you can do is receive it and rest upon it. His ambition, his success becomes the thing that makes you absolutely beautiful in the eyes of God. And here's the irony. The more you believe that, the more diligent you will be to serve Christ in all of your life. It's true. The greater the grace of Christ's cross and work for you grips your heart, the more you'll think, he deserves this. He deserves my best effort. He is worthy of my work. He deserves it. 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 That's what the gospel produces. Your best. Because God did not spare you his best. Let's pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Thank you for the work of their hands. Thank you for your work on their behalf, Lord Jesus Christ, becoming for them their salvation, their beautiful righteousness, their hope, their redemption, their cleansing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us yourself and all of your glory. May that glory so grip our hearts that in all that we do, we would strive to imitate you because you are worthy You are worthy. You are worthy. Amen.